was a point at which I was getting between 5 and 15 robocalls a day. If you don't know what a robocall is, actually, you, you probably do. Here are a couple. An order of iPhone 12 Pro placed using your account information for $1,099. Complimentary stay. For further details, press 1 now. To be placed on the do not call list, press 2 now. Cardholders, the opportunity to eliminate their credit card debt. This is a limited time offer. To get yourself enrolled today, please press 1 to speak to a live representative now. Hi there. I am calling you from AT&T DirecTV to let you know that your existing account is qualified for 50% off. Hello, this is Sophia with the Processing Center. I'm calling today because I found an error on your reported income for your federal student loan. I've had, uh, hold on, let me look, uh, 142 unlistened to voicemails on my phone. They are all robocallers. So named because a robot, aka computer, calls a huge selection of numbers trying to make a connection and upon answer, a usually pre-recorded message tells you you've won something or your identity has been stolen or you owe back taxes. And if you stay on the line, someone will help you. And by help, they mean defraud. Sometimes a robocall is legitimate. Political robocalling, where a candidate canvasses voters by interrupting their dinner, is both legal and common for some reason. Some polling companies use robocalling to gather public opinion. Technically, private businesses aren't supposed to call you if you're on the national do not call registry in the United States, but that's sort of like hanging a sign on your mailbox that says, no junk mail, please. Besides, most robocalls are scams. The folks placing them already have a questionable relationship to the law. Far and away, the best way to deal with these calls is to simply ignore them. If your service carrier doesn't already mark them as sus, their nature is often obvious in other ways. I can tell it's not a real person when the incoming number shares my area code and prefix, which was given out to mobile phones only in Cambridge, Massachusetts between like 1998 and 2001, so it's very unlikely that any of the other 9,999 people in that group are calling me. Scammers are just spoofing a number they think I will answer. So I let it go to voicemail, and I usually get a recording of the first couple seconds of their spiel. What about your vehicle's manufacturer's warranty? We sent you several notices in the mail that you have yet to extend your warranty past the factory cutoff. And this is a courtesy call to renew your warranty before we close the file. If you're interested in... Re they recently got these guys, by the way, or at least a number of them, the guys running the car warranty scam. If you haven't heard this one, uh, you should consider yourself very lucky. It was so ubiquitous. It became an internet meme. It was uh, even a TikTok trend for a little while. And I mean, no wonder it was a very popular scam. In December of last year, in 2022, the FCC fined Roy Cox Jr. and Michael Aaron Jones of the California-based Sumco Panama companies $300 million for making billions of scam auto warranty phone calls. That's the largest fine ever levied by the commission. On March 7th of this year, an Ohio judge ordered John Caldwell Spiller II and Jacob Mears of Rising Eagle Capital. Capital Group, J Squared Telecom, and Rising Eagle Capital Group Cayman to pay over $240 million for their billions of illegal robocalls, including the car warranty scam. All in all, in the last six or so months, the FCC has gone after a dozen people tied to half a dozen companies, all trying to bilk people out of their cash with this 
one scam. The point being, obviously, this is a current problem, and I'm not alone. If two organizations run by four guys in Texas and California made billions and billions of calls, can you even imagine how bad this problem is nationally or internationally? Well, good news, no imagination necessary. We have the numbers. A digression about the numbers, though. While the FCC publishes statistics on the severity of robocalling in the U.S., as you might expect of a government organization, they're pretty narrow. The most up-to-date research is published by corporations, specifically anti-spam corporations, businesses that make, quote, app-based call protection services, or, quote, predictive spam blocking algorithms. As such, it is very much in their interest to exaggerate the number and impact of robocalls. I'm not saying that they do exaggerate, but comparing the yearly reports of several of these companies, and I'll link to all of them in the show notes, the stats can vary by large quantities, like multiple orders of magnitude. So all this to say, what counts as a robocall, or the total losses incurred by robocall scams, or the total number of people impacted by robocalls, are not really easily directly measured, except via the customer base of specific technologies without wide adoption, and with wide adoption only within very specific demographics, namely people with mobile phones who will pay a monthly fee for an app that blocks spam calls and texts. Though, for what it's worth, the statistics provided by these companies are used by the Congressional Research Service and the FCC and the FTC and probably others to write reports which inform legislation and various types of federal rulemaking. So maybe I'm being too tough. Can I, a lone podcasting man, be expected to have better research practices than the federal government? I mean, I could purchase a, quote, full research suite on global robocall mitigation efforts, which includes a comprehensive assessment of the robocalling market and its technological capabilities, but that would cost me $3,656.70, which is a bit out of reach at the moment. Head to patreon.com forward slash micrognetta if you want to contribute to my apparently growing research budget. So, okay, the numbers. According to the Congressional Research Service's 2020 report on progress protecting consumers from illegal robocalls, in 2019, U.S. consumers received 58.5 billion illegal robocalls. When the pandemic began, that number decreased by up to 50% through June 2020. But by autumn, it was above previous rates for an overall increase of 18% that year. This was followed by an additional 32% increase in 2021 to 70 some billion robocalls. Around this time, robotexts begin to match and then exceed robocalls, with nearly 90 million robo SMSs received in 2021 and a whopping 225 billion in 2022, compared to the nearly 80 billion robocalls the same year. So far, 2023 is on trend to be just as bad, if not worse, than previous years, but this is also the year a few new laws go into effect, so things could take a turn. We're going to talk about those laws towards the end of this episode. 
and just so we're on the same page, robotexts are roughly the same thing as robocalls. Sometimes I get two for Tuesday or Burger Wednesday texts from a restaurant I eat at in rural Massachusetts when I visit my parents, but mostly I get hilariously suspicious messages from, quote, Amazon or, quote, Netflix telling me that my account has been hacked and to reset my password, I need to go to www.accountwith1crecovery.cz.biz forward slash a bunch of letters and numbers. If you see these, just delete them or forward them to the short code 7726, which will report them as spam to your carrier. Uh, by the end of this year, there may be other ways to report spam texts too. Uh, they're, they're working on some stuff. So, you know, keep an eye on the news for that kind of stuff. All right, back to the numbers. Depending upon who you ask, all of these calls scammed Americans out of three to $70 billion each year in this span. They lost upwards of $20 billion to SMS scams. You'll probably not be surprised to learn that the most robocalled states are Texas and California. This is a courtesy call to renew your warranty. Now, you may be wondering... Why? Why is it like this? Why isn't anyone doing anything about it? And they are. I mean, I just told you about people who were arrested and fined. But yeah, you're right. A bunch of arrests, a systemic change does not make. And like anything else, if the only real punishment is a fine, you can break that law all you want as long as you're making money. So what's going on? Why not a more focused and severe enforcement for rampant robocalls, which is, I might add, the number one complaint American consumers make to the FCC? The short answer is, it's simply really tough for a lot of reasons. The layers of technology, how that technology was designed and connected, where in the world it is and who owns it, not to mention the cumulative century of laws governing it. All of this contributes to the difficulty in stopping your phone dinging endlessly with unfamiliar numbers. Some laws have been passed recently, last year, this year, last month, this month as I've been writing this, to help mitigate the waves of spam calls, but they're going to take some time to implement, and even then, they won't be perfect. And to understand why, why this is so hard, why these laws won't be a panacea, and what needs to be done to stop all this nonsense, we have to understand all that other stuff, the layers of technology, how and why it was designed the way it is, who owns it, and why some of those people who own it don't really want things to get better. That is what this episode of Reasonably Sound is about. A full research suite on robocall mitigation efforts with a comprehensive assessment of the robocalling market and its technological capabilities, and I'm not even going to charge you $3,656.70. At the end, we're going to take what we've learned and we're going to use it to reflect a bit on work, like what it means to have a job, especially now, multiple years into a global pandemic. But first, what exactly do robocall scammers want? They want your money. It's pretty simple. I can end the act here, really. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, scammers want a few things, though those things are usually stepping stones to money. One way the car extended warranty scam works, for example, is this. They call you and they say, your car warranty has expired, or it's about to, and whew, wouldn't it be bad if you got into an accident? You know, 56% of Americans don't have $1,000 for an emergency expense, and car repairs are not cheap, my friend. So you pay a little up front for a new warranty, and you're safe. They take your personal information under the guise of selling you this warranty, and then 
they have your personal information, name, address, credit card info, vehicle identification number, and they use that any number of nefarious ways, often just good old fashioned identity theft. You may have heard about tech support scams where someone calls and says your computer has a virus and in order to get rid of it, you need to pay them a small amount of money, like 50 or 100 bucks, and you have to hand over remote access to your machine so that they can do the fixes. After which, they lock down your machine and demand an additional $1,000 instant wire or they're just gonna delete everything on your computer. Sometimes they pretend to be the IRS and say that you owe an outstanding tax bill. One popular scam is in Mandarin. The pre-recorded voice says that your financial assets are under investigation by the People's Republic of China, and there are some fines that you have to pay. I've even heard of an SMS scam where they pretend to be your boss. It goes like this. Uh, <laughs> your boss is stuck in a meeting, and for some reason, he needs $200 Apple gift cards. Uh, like, you know, Apple Music gift cards or whatever. Um, but not the cards themselves, just the information on the cards. So, if you could run out and grab those, and pay for them with your own money, and text him the info, he'll pay you back once this meeting is over. Uh, that one is basically just a cash grab, but most scams are vector for getting someone's personal info. There is, though I should say, another way that the car extended warranty scam works, and it is that they sell you a warranty. It's just a very bad warranty. Uh, it covers nothing, or it only covers specific things, or it only covers up to like $75, or you got to front the money for any repairs and then submit a claim, and the claims are never approved. In some cases, the charges for the warranty are ongoing, so canceling your quote-unquote warranty is like canceling a gym membership. You would have an easier time pulling the sword from the stone, and not just because you haven't been going to the gym. Uh, so it's, it's all a scam, but it's a scam in the way that, like, Herbalife or DeVry University are scams. They, they may be, you know, legal, but the number of lawsuits that they've been involved in is, let's say it's non-standard. There are a bunch of organizations that straddle this line between scam and just spam, uh, like firefighter benefit orgs that give maybe 2% of the money they collect to firefighters, or businesses which help you pay off your credit card or medical debt with a high-rate loan from them. And hey, would you look at that? You are pre-approved. Scams, like all sales, prey on all of our most easily activated emotions. Fear, guilt, pride, desire. You wouldn't want anything bad to happen. You don't want to not help the firefighters, right? You never win anything, and now this guy says that you've got a free cruise on the way? Or, you know, they can make that crushing medical debt just disappear. You sprinkle in a little urgency. You gotta act now, you gotta act fast. This is the last chance, this deal won't last long. And with the right target, you've basically mixed effective jet fuel. It's just, they do need to make sure that they have the right target. So legal or not, all of these scams benefit from leads. I mean, think about it. What good is a car warranty scam if the person you're calling doesn't have a car? Or a medical debt scam if uh, the person that is being called has never had a single surgery? So to maximize their effectiveness and waste as little of their precious scamming resources as possible, they gotta call folks to whom the premise of the call applies. 
How do they know they're calling someone who meets the base criteria? One approach is to purchase data breaches on the dark web. Personal information acquired from Adobe, AT&T, Equifax, or any other of the umpteen corporations who have had various of their databases hacked and the info within exposed like a mineral-rich vein to so many data prospectors. Now, at least it's known if you're an Adobe customer, an AT&T customer, a credit card holder, or a U.S. taxpayer. Scammers might also purchase legal data sets. Every time you enter your personal information into a website and agree to all of the terms and conditions, there's a chance that you're agreeing to those folks selling some or all of that information. Many of those businesses are probably only ever doing somewhat shady things with your personal info, but a bunch of them are probably doing whatever they want. Uh, as far as I've read, the biggest culprits are apparently restaurant wait systems, iPad point-of-sale kiosks, legit charities, and your own mobile plan providers. The reputation of these places is that they are happy to provide your personal info to whomsoever would want to pay for it. The FCC calls this a lead generator loophole. It's where you tell one company once that they can have your info and contact you for marketing purposes, but then they sell your info to other companies who sell, sell it to other companies who sell it to other companies, companies, who who companies, companies and so on. Sources for this and everything else are in the show notes and at reasonablysound.com, by the way. So, Scam call centers make money this way, too, by selling the personal information of the people that they are scamming. This is one reason all of the anti-scam PSAs say, don't answer, don't text back, ignore it, report it, delete it. Because if you do answer, even just to be cute, you get a little gold star next to your name in the column that says, responds. And then they take all those numbers, put them in a high-quality leads package, and sell it for who knows how much money to the guys down the proverbial street. Scammers also make money, this one is truly wild, by simply calling you. Even if you don't pick up, they can make fractions of a cent. But remember, they're placing billions of calls. So the half pennies... Over time, they add up to a lot. Oh, okay. How does this work? I'm going to tell you, because it's also part of why they're so hard to stop. But first, a little background on how phone calls are made in the U.S. In order to make a robocall from scratch, first, you must invent the universe of telecom companies. Back in 1877, Alexander Graham Bell opened the first telephone exchange in the U.S. It was called American Bell Telephone Company, and it was located in sunny New Haven, Connecticut. Over the next hundred or so years, the Ma Bell telephone system, as in Mother Bell, grew to become a monopoly in the United States, owning a practical entirety of the telephone network from coast to coast as eventually American Telephone and Telegraph, or AT&T. The Bell system escaped dissolution several times over. Notably, in 1949, the U.S. government obtained a consent decree from AT&T and Bell that limited their market penetration to 85% of the market. <laughs> 
Uh, lol. Um, and required their patents to be filed royalty-free. The good news here is that this led to a massive amount of electronics and telephony innovation over the coming decades. Eventually, though, the Bell system got way too big regardless, too vertically integrated. Um, it means like AT&T owned both the network and all the places that manufactured equipment for the network, so it needed to be broken up, which it was in 1984. Uh, the government split the larger Ma Bell system into roughly 30 so-called baby bells, independent regional operators. However, in standard American practice, the U.S. government followed its big regulatory swing of 1984 with a big deregulatory backswing, the Telecommunications Act of 1996. This historic legislation, in my way of thinking, really embodies what we ought to be about as a country and what we ought to be about in this city. It clearly enables the age of possibility in America to expand, to include more Americans. It will create many, many high-wage jobs. It will provide for more information and more entertainment to virtually every American home. It embodies our best values by supporting the kind of market reforms that the vice president mentioned, as well as the V-chip. And it brings us together, and it was passed by people coming together. The stated goal of this act was, quote, to promote competition and reduce regulation in order to secure lower prices and higher quality services for the American telecommunications consumers and encourage the rapid deployment of new telecommunications technologies. The effective outcome was that it allowed large corporations to get into further corners of the communications market, like letting telephone companies offer cable service. It also allowed those companies to merge more freely, to the point where today, we're not quite back at Ma Bell levels of monopoly, but a relatively small number of corporations do control the vast majority of communications, broadcast cable, and telephone services in the U.S. See, for example, Clear Channel with radio in the 90s, Sinclair Broadcast Group with uh, television and especially local news today, or you in your house right now wanting anyone else but your current cable provider. Sorry, fat chance. Anyway, there are a few things in the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that are important to us and the case of robocalls. One is Section 259, Infrastructure Sharing, paragraph A of which requires incumbent local exchange carriers to make available to any qualifying carrier such public switched network infrastructure, technology, information, and telecommunications facilities and functions as may be requested by such qualifying carrier for the purpose of enabling such qualifying carrier to provide telecommunications service or to provide access to information services. Basically, the big boys can't box out the little guys by saying, we built this huge communications network and you can't have access. They gotta give them the hookup. Literally. Furthermore, the Act establishes the duty to provide to any requesting telecommunications carrier for the provision of a telecommunications service non-discriminatory access to network elements on an unbundled basis at any technically feasible point on rates, terms, and conditions that are just, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. Elsewhere, it specified that those rates offered to requesting telecommunications carriers must be wholesale. This, and more, is responsible for the overall reduction in phone rates over the 
past 30 years. Physical access and wholesale rates give smaller telcos a fighting chance and help maintain what's called any-to-any service cheap, easy access to a national communications grid so any person on any phone originating with any carrier can call any other person on any other phone regardless of their terminating carrier. Now, for all its faults, and they were numerous, there was a simplicity to the bell system. Calls were placed and received within the same uninterrupted end-to-end network, making it easy to monitor and regulate even if we didn't. That is no longer the case. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 made it feasible for all sorts of smaller companies to enter the scene, far beyond the original clutch of baby bells, and hook into the national network. And the law says if they want to direct a call, the rest of the system has to take it. This didn't level the playing field so much as to allow for the existence of a meaningful competitor to the biggest, most entrenched telcos, but it did allow various smaller concerns using technology whose genealogy traces back to those royalty-free patents of the mid-century to hook into the larger, pre-existing system and offer services to customers at wholesale cost for retail prices. Those retail customer subscription fees from the folks who simply need phone service allow the smaller carriers to make some money. Another way carriers make money, sometimes 40% of their total revenue, is by acting as an intermediate provider, one of many carriers that link any given call from its originating provider, the outgoing call, to its terminating provider, where it's answered. As the National Consumer Law Center and Electronic Privacy Information Center describe in their joint 2020 report, at each step in the call connection process, and for long-distance calls there can be many, many steps, the upstream or sending provider pays the downstream or receiving provider a small amount of money for access to their network. This is called intercarrier compensation or ICC. In this way, carriers acting as intermediaries are incentivized to accept and connect as many calls as possible, especially if they make comparatively little from customer subscription fees. Maybe you are starting to see where this is headed. This scheme ends up costing robocallers and their carriers some money. They have to pay connection fees for their billions of calls, but it's in their interest to pay because those fees line the pockets of the downstream providers who they need to connect their calls. One reason it's been hard to put an end to robocalls is that carriers have been profiting off of them directly via intercarrier compensation. They are, in one view, punished for identifying high call volume sources as fraudulent. So why would they speak up or proactively prevent them? The network of interconnected carriers also makes it tough to trace a call's origin in what is now a significantly multi-party system. We've gone from Ma Bell to Baby Bells to a veritable carillon. Finding the source of a call has often required manual backtracing, taking info like call time, duration, and caller ID readout, going to the terminating carrier with a subpoena and saying, where did this call come from? Then going to the upstream carrier who they identify with another subpoena and doing the same. Repeat over and over again, getting a new subpoena every time until you reach the end of the line or a carrier who simply can't tell you where the call originated. Like 
maybe you get through all the upstream carriers and you arrive at what's called a gateway carrier who forwarded the call into the United States from overseas. Maybe they can point you in a direction, but really, to get any more info, you're going to need cooperation from a foreign corporation or worse, a foreign government, which, I mean, that's a whole other hour-long episode, the summary of which is... Good luck! You'll need it! And speaking of caller ID, it is an integral component of these schemes because, yes, it can mask a caller's identity, but it's also yet another way for robocallers to profit. In the US, there are two pieces of call identifying info. Caller ID is the display of a number, and CNAM or CNAP data displays a name associated with that number. Spoofing a number is tough if you're calling from a landline, but a cinch on a VOIP or VoIP line, phone systems which make calls using the internet. A lot of hosted VoIP services let you simply type the number you want to appear into a box and, voila, with a reasonable amount amount of success, that's what shows up on the receiving line, especially if it's another digital connection. This is how the vast majority of scammers do this part of it. They hire an unscrupulous VoIP provider who won't check to see if their clients actually own the numbers they say they're calling from. Certain laws, and we're going to talk about those soon, are trying to make this a little bit harder, though. The CNAME data is a little different. In the US, name data isn't sent with the call like a number is. In order to find out the name of the person or organization calling you, your carrier has to go check a database. And it says, hey, I have this number. Who does it belong to? And the database says, oh. Yeah, that belongs to Micrognetta. My info is in that database because my carrier put it there. And I can even go to my account settings. I went and checked this last night. And I can change it to whatever I want. I can change it to Mayor McCheese if I wanted to. Though I probably shouldn't because that is technically illegal. There are a bunch of CNAME databases, some maintained by the carriers themselves, some by telecom solutions providers, and others by various private companies. Every time they're queried, this is called dipping, the carrier who wants to display that CNAME data has to pay a fraction of a cent. It's called a dip fee. In a roundabout kind of way, this arrangement is used by call centers to turn a profit. As Sarah Krauss explained in the Wall Street Journal in 2018, what happens is this. Scammers buy numbers to call from a number dealer. Scammers call those numbers. And somehow, the details here are hazy, and I'm assuming that's the case because describing how this works in detail would be describing how to do wire fraud. So somehow, the terminating carrier dips into a CNAME database controlled by the scammers or their number dealers. This charges the terminating carrier a dip fee, which may be a fraction of a cent, but remember, they're making billions of calls. And the money may from the dip fees is then split between the scammer and the number dealer. What shows up in the CNAME field of the caller ID on the terminating line could be any number of things, whatever approach they're taking that day. Uh, they might be calling from a number they actually control with fraudulent CNAME data. They might be spoofing both the caller number and the caller CNAME data. The CNAME data might be correct, but out of date. Uh, the number and the name data might match. That person may actually own that number, but that's not the number calling you. It may be correct across the board and the company providing the caller's communication services either doesn't know or doesn't care that they're hosting a phone user of ill repute. Either way, even if you don't answer, the dip fee means that they make money. 
This scheme has caused big problems for toll-free numbers specifically in the U.S. Robocallers would set up these rolling and occasionally interminable calls to automated toll-free lines, which, because they are toll-free, pay both dip and connection fees, which end up going right to the scammers and their cronies. In the 2018 FCC docket in the matter of 8YY access charge reform, then-FCC chairman Ajit Pai explained, An autodialer may hit the pound key every 20 seconds, which can send an 8YY call into an endless loop, generating minute after minute of originating access charges for the originating local exchange carrier, which has partnered with the caller to share the revenue. In the end, these calls are paid for by anyone that operates an 8YY number, such as a business or a nonprofit like the Red Cross. The former FCC chairman knew this was a problem. The current FCC chairwoman, Jessica Rosenworcel, knows it's a problem. She recently formed the Robocall Response Team to, quote, leverage the talents of enforcers, attorneys, policymakers, engineers, economists, and outreach experts to combat the unyielding menace of illegal spoofed scam robocalls and robotexts. Okay, why? Why am I still getting so many robocalls and spam texts if this is the case? There's a whole response team. And, you know, it's not just me. One source shows that uh, though robocalls have dipped in comparison to this time last year, they are up in comparison to the end of 2022, hovering around four and a half billion per month. The simple answer is this. The telephony system in the U.S., made up of the public telephone system, known as the PSTN, and the various digital systems which connect to it, like VoIP and wireless, were largely built to accept and forward calls. From the first days of the American Bell Telephone Company, Ma Bell, AT&T, to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, and all the innovations, mergers, startups, and communications providers that have sprung up since, the priority has always been access. Making sure that if someone wants to call someone, they can. If a company wants to connect to the network, they can. That there are as few restrictions as possible between carriers and networks and providers and systems and callers. This is all considered a feature and not a bug. Stopping calls has simply not been a priority. In 2016, speaking on increasing rates of robocalling, acting FCC Commissioner Clyburn even said, the commission has a long history of prohibiting abusive or anti-competitive use of call blocking technology, but consumers want relief. In a lot of ways, robocalls and texts present the first truly systemic reason to rethink what has been the base philosophy of telephony in the US the scale of the problem has gotten large enough to warrant meaningful changes in the various networks and protocols that comprise the conglomeration of landlines, wireless devices, and internet-connected calling services. Namely, figuring out how and why to refuse calls in addition to accepting them, lest the usefulness of the whole system continually suffer. And it's not just our system. This is a global problem. 
In 2021, the most robocalled nation was Brazil by a pretty extreme margin, with each person receiving on average 33 calls per month. There hasn't been a global spam report for 2022 that I can find, but Brazil was the most robocalled nation five years running, and there's good evidence that trend continues. Peru came in second in 2021 with only 18 calls per number per month, followed by Ukraine and India. The U.S. ranked down at 20th. The countries most plagued by robo-SMSs are almost entirely African. Cameroon, Somalia, and Tanzania top the list. Brazil and Indonesia make later appearances. So solving this has to be a global effort. The UK, Canada, Australia, Brazil, and India have all recently passed significant legislation in an attempt to curb what late South Carolina Senator Ernest Hollings called the scourge of modern civilization. Some laws have even been passed in partnership with other countries. The scale of the problem is massive, and so the solutions, too, are going to be daunting and piecemeal to start. I started working on this episode in 2018, alongside the others that came out that year and the next. And while the main reason I ended up taking a break from Reasonably Sound was the emotional toil of a global pandemic that you might have heard about, one contributing factor was the apparent scope of this topic, the causes of avenues for and mitigation efforts around robocalls on a global scale is a simply gargantuan topic. Hundreds of research documents and 60-some pages of notes in, I thought to myself, this isn't an episode of a podcast, this is a book. And then I kind of froze. Which, uh, if anybody wants a book proposal about how robocalls speak to some particular things about communication and labor in a post-social media world, uh, it turns out I have a lot to say. And so then, but anyway, lest we stare directly into the void, we must restrict ourselves to a particular focus. We'll continue as we have with the U.S. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to an exhaustive list of what the FCC and the FTC and other orgs have done to block the influx of robocalls. But here are the greatest hits of what's been done so far. The Telephone Consumer Protection Act of 1991 basically outlaws robo-dialing, or what at the time would have been more commonly called telemarketing. It also established the requirement for company-specific do-not-call lists and the national do-not-call registry, which is effective in the way polite requests often are when made to criminals and fraudsters. I mention this only because, depending upon who you ask, the TCPA was dealt something of a blow in 2020-2021 when the Supreme Court said that robo calls are really only illegal per this act if the technology dials your number at random versus on purpose or from a list. In 2008 and 9, the FTC implemented and then expanded the telemarketing sales rule, stating that, quote, telemarketers must obtain prior written approval from consumers who want to receive robocalls. This was a good idea in theory, but it left open that loophole that we talked about a bit ago. If you gave consent to one company, they could effectively forward that consent to other companies. The FCC is closing that loophole now. In 2009, the Truth in Caller ID Act made it illegal to spoof caller ID ID info for the purpose of committing fraud. So that means your doctor can still spoof the office number if they're calling from their home, a business can spoof their call-in number when a particular extension calls you, and so on. But if someone is trying to scam you, there is now an additional criminal charge if they spoof their number. 
These are deterrents, but none is proactive. They disincentivize already illegal activities, but they're only effective where U.S. law has jurisdiction and they don't stop calls before your phone rings. And as we've seen, the problem only steadily got worse over the years following these laws. So the approach had to change. And slowly, it has. In 2014, a consortium of trade groups and standards organizations began work on something called STIR, for Secure Telephone Identity Revisited, a system for attaching identifying information to phone calls made using the SIP protocol, which is used for VoIP and LTE communications, so most modern cell phones, basically. In 2016, FCC Chair Tom Wheeler convened the first meeting of the Robocall Strike Force, which I will note is different from the Robocall Response Team. This is a group of 33 industry leaders, so, you know, your AT&Ts, your Googles, Microsoft, Nokia, Comcast, etc. They were convened with the intention of planning implementation of methods for mitigating the problem of robocalling. The Robocall Strike Force <laughs> didn't take too many meetings. A common criticism of the force was that the members would take basically no action unless required by the government. And that basically ended up being the case until the Traced Act, which we're gonna talk about in a second. By 2018, STIR was finalized, but there was a problem. There was no way for the identifying information attached to these digital phone calls to jump the gap from the SIP protocol to the PSTN, the rest of the vanilla public telephone network, like landlines, which operates on a whole different stack of technology. And so the same consortium of trade groups and standard organizations that made STIR begins development on SHAKEN, or signature-based handling of asserted information using tokens to solve this problem. So yes, getting info from the SIP protocol requires the shaken and stir verification systems. These systems implement a bunch of confirmation and attestation protocols, which probably should have been in effect a long time ago, like checking to see if a call claims to come from an unassigned number, or a number assigned to a government organization. The attestation systems basically say, how sure are we that this call is coming from the place it claims to? At the highest levels, everything matches in every database and token and piece of metadata. At the lowest levels, no one is absolutely sure where the call is coming from, and you may see these calls labeled on your own phone as spam risk. The TRACED Act for Telephone Robocall Abuse Criminal Enforcement and Deterrence passed at the very end of 2019. It establishes a timeline for originating carriers to implement the shaken and stir systems. That deadline was June 30th, 2021 for carriers with 100,000 or more customers, and originally June 30th, 2023 for smaller carriers, but it was moved up to 2022 because of how much robocallers were relying on small carriers to connect their calls. This year, in June 2023, gateway carriers will have to meet a deadline to implement Shaken and Stir, and by December 31st, intermediate carriers will have to do the same. These likely will be watershed moments, since so many spam and scam calls come from overseas and rely on these carriers to connect. But... A lot of questions remain, like how well will these systems work with international calls outside of North America? How strict will enforcement be and how severe the penalties? How hard will the regulation be to just simply ignore? One of scammers' biggest techniques up until now has been partnering with carriers who just don't mind breaking the law. That's one reason, and maybe the biggest reason, that you're still getting scam calls in 2023, even though some of these laws went into effect in 2021. 
And in February 2023, the FCC published its very first rules aimed at reducing robotexts, which are similar to those for robocalls. Carriers will be required to simply block SMSs from invalid, unallocated, or unused numbers, numbers which are known to be unable to send text messages, and numbers from government entities. The IRS doesn't text back. This is what I'm hearing. What happens next? We're going to have to wait and see. For their part, the National Consumer Law Center and Electronic Privacy Information Center, who we referenced earlier on how downstream carriers profit from connecting fraudulent calls, list more than a few areas of improvement in their report from mid-last year. To their credit, the FCC has implemented some of their recommendations, like imposing significant fines for carriage of known fraudulent calls and restricting access to powerful, consumer-oriented resources if carriers are negligent. But there are still some weak spots, like the fact the FCC only requires carriers to block calls when they're informed of their fraudulent nature by the commission. Carriers may block calls that they find to be fraudulent, may, not must, until specific notice is given. Then, and only then, must they. The NCLC and EPIC write, The FCC regulations should be changed to require that all providers, including intermediate providers, use all available methodologies to block scam calls as soon as they are discovered. How effective all this legislation, rulemaking, systems, and protocol development ends up being will become increasingly clear as we finish out 2023. Of course, a lot of us know what it's like to live in a world without a nonstop deluge of robocalls. As mentioned at the top of this episode, the first quarter of 2020, scam and spam call rates tanked as the pandemic emptied every office, even, apparently, the ones filled with scammers. This was a notable absence at the time, to, to a lot of folks, I assume, and to me specifically because I had been working on this episode on and off for about a year. Traced had just passed, and I thought, well, I mean, let's see where this goes before polishing off the first version of this script, and then all the calls stopped. After which, uh, a weird thing happened. It sort of made me appreciate all of the people who had spent so many years trying in vain to bilk me out of my money as people. People who had to go to work, except work is also a crime. People who had to go to the office, an office of scammers, but still a, a office nonetheless, and going to the office to do the crimes uh, with others and around, you know, other people, their co-workers, that represented a risk to their health. And so they all stopped for a little while, like a lot of us, if we were fortunate enough to be able to stop or unlucky enough to be forced to. Then, slowly but surely, they got back to work. Well, considering the ongoing pandemic, this year, 2021, DirecTV has decided to give 50% discount to all of its existing customers. Calls came in again. They went back to their offices. Maybe some worked from home. I'm not going to pretend to know for sure, except to say that their cadence felt matched to mine as we both figured out how to live in these very new, very complicated circumstances. Around this time, I had also started watching a bunch of Kit Boga and Jim Browning videos. Uh, these are two well-known internet scam baiters. They record themselves wasting scammers' time as entertainment, education, and sometimes as the smallest sort of vigilante justice. 
in Jim Browning's videos specifically, you can sometimes see where these often Indian scammers work. They're call centers, if you want to call it that, though they're really more like sad cubicle farms. He's able to gain access to their networked devices by installing remote desktop software on their machines as they try to install the same on his. So, watching this footage through their webcams, you see people shoved into these little boxes, slumped over their keyboards, uh, you know, head in hands, wandering around between stations, uh, eating, distributing snacks, typing, sitting for what must be hours at a time. These people cannot look more truly at work. And in 2021, Yujit Bhattacharjee wrote this piece for the New York Times, Who's Making All of These Scam Calls, is what it was called, that further cements this portrait. He goes to India, to Kolkata, which he surmises is the scam call capital of India, because it is the call center capital of India. And he talks to people who speak of the salaries that they're paid to defraud foreigners, um, of the complex hierarchy of subcontractors employed to keep this multi-part, multi-level industry running, uh, of people who can't move up in the hierarchy because they don't have the skills or professional connections. So watching, reading, thinking about all this, I can't not consider David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs. In 2013, Graeber wrote an essay for Strike magazine that turned eventually into a book-length exploration of the explosion in pencil pushers, basically. Quote, HR consultants, communications coordinators, PR researchers, and financial strategists. The expansion, he writes, of sectors like corporate law, academic and health administration, the creation of whole new industries like financial services or telemarketing. Productive jobs are those where useful items are made, needed services are provided, the lives of people and the state of the world improved. Bullshit jobs, Graeber explains, serve no purpose. The bullshit job is, quote, so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though, as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. Graeber says crime isn't really a bullshit job. It lacks the pretense and the salary. His example is a mob hitman. Uh, the mob hitman isn't out there insisting, uh, one would imagine, that his job is necessary. And besides, doesn't it sort of feel wrong to call hitman a job in the way people normally understand it? This is the argument that Graeber makes, at least. These scammers, in their call centers with bosses working for a salary, they provide a real challenge to this, I think. They represent one and maybe the prime example of the bullshitification of crime. Of course, it's hard to meet Graeber's necessary condition concerning the honest feelings of the person doing the job. It is not exactly easy to get a scammer to tell you what they really think about what they're doing. But if we put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment, what are they doing? working in an overlit office in a small cubicle. They are on the phone for hours a day doing tech support, or they're spending their days filling out forms, though fair enough, sometimes they're your forms. They're talking to idiots, no offense to your grandma. They're maintaining spreadsheets with mindless amounts of data. They're staying up to date with the ever-shifting technologies and standards that both enable and prevent them from doing their work. And they're probably also getting chewed out by the only guy with a door on his office for not hitting monthly quotas and going home after a long day, sort of pissed about it. They get home, they tell their parents that they hate their job because it's awful, dishonest work. This exact scenario is described in the New York Times piece. And their parents say, who cares what the company does? Go to work, get your paycheck, don't cause any trouble. 
The robocalling industry is some form of stereotypical office work, reflected in a funhouse mirror, or a smashed one, depending upon your perspective and taste for metaphor. Or perhaps it's vice versa. I mean, to pinch a TV title, each is the other in a black mirror, a hazy, ghostified version, recognizable but murky. Telecom carriers are simply providing a service, connecting whatever calls come through to their downstream providers and finally their destination. The colorful celebratory iPad at your local coffee shop wonders, do you agree to these terms and services for the use of your personal information? Thanks, you got four gold stars for this purchase. Your actual car insurance company wonders, how have you liked your policy? Do you want to add home coverage? The rates are very competitive. Via their ever-presence, robocalls have poisoned the well of impromptu outreach. They've made the real work of dentists, mechanics, doctors, insurers, accountants that much more suspicious on occasion. They are, up until the fateful moment of response, functionally indistinguishable from scams, which have also, in a way, poisoned the well of work, demonstrating how so many click-clacking, computer-gazing, cubicle desk jobs might themselves be functionally indistinguishable from a scam. Certainly these endeavors look like work, but an anthropologist somewhere might gaze studiously upon them and go, anyone really call this a job? Graeber says bullshit jobs have to exist because we've hit maximum capacity for truly productive work, but our global economic arrangement, as it were, won't tolerate letting the hoi polloi laze about, not stimulating the economy, even if there isn't really anything for them to do. And we can't just be giving out free money. So the folks in charge of distributing the paychecks invent hospital administrative staff. They invent middle management and interdepartmental liaisons and innovation leads. Perhaps... When there are not even bullshit jobs, we then have to settle for bullshit crimes. The capital W weird specter of work, which can't otherwise be found, especially in smaller and developing economies. What other choice is there if money, or resources thus obviating the need for money, won't be given out? Writing about Nigerian 419 scams, Hello, I'm a prince. Can you manage my fortune? I need an advance of $500. For the Journal of Information Development, Misafiri writes, Just exactly how do able and ingenious people make a living in an economy where the majority, including graduates, are unemployed or underemployed, where the jobs that can be obtained are insecure and badly paid, and where dishonesty and corruption are the examples set by those in power. This is exactly the situation faced by millions in developing countries. Do they join those who scrape a living from casual work, petty trading, scavenging, and all those other hard, dirty, and humiliating apologies for a secure existence that seem to be all that's on offer? Or do they exercise their ingenuity and seek to do something to equalize the capital outflows that cripple the most developing economies? In Ethnography, Anthony Wayne Fontes and Kevin Lewis O'Neill write about Pablo and Carlos. Both are incarcerated in Guatemala and both run scams from their contraband mobile phones. Describing the skill, investment plans, and knowledge required to be successful, Carlos calls their endeavor a business plan, a structured business plan, in comparison to their pre-prison work of extortion. Fontes and O'Neill write that the Guatemalan prison system is at over double capacity with little to no federal funding. Quote, the state does not provide the prisoner with even the most basic of necessities, they write. And so money and a fast way to get it are more important than most anything else. Prisoners can sew soccer balls for less than the cost of eating once per day, or they can turn to other means. 
Pablo and Carlos discuss taking shifts, being each other's managers when a, quote, client gets upset, staying consistent and practicing their customer service voice. When there is no work, this is the work that gets invented in attempts to forge some pathway towards survival when another easier and more obvious one isn't provided. What does it say when jobs that comprise the scourge of modern society can look so similar to the labor millions of us do every day for apparently legitimate businesses? As a half answer, lest this become the longest reasonably sound episode by a factor of two, I'm going to part with a fable, that of the Vampirotuthus infernalis, the vampire squid from hell, as told by Wilhelm Flusser. In Flusser's book, named after the real but exaggerated squid itself, he paints a portrait of a truly bizarre being, a fanged, hooded, tentacled beast which knows only the pitch black of the ocean floor, illuminated only just by its own bioluminescence. It consumes what of the world comes to and through it in the mysterious currents of the abyss and thinks with one brain for each appendage. It is a monstrous being whose main modes are survival and deception, producing ink clouds to, quote, delude its predators and survive another day in the murky depths. It's hard to imagine something any more different from a human being. And yet, Flusser explains, we might trace a point far, far back in evolutionary history where we were not so different where more was shared between the ancestors of the vampire squid from hell and the ancestors of humanity. From that point, then, we can chart the pressures which lead to the massive differences in these two organisms. We can see those pressures were exerted by their environment. The ocean floor versus Ohio, Belarus, Kolkata. It's not that I think an office worker is human and a robocaller or scammer is a vampire squid from hell. Not them, but each of their jobs is some horrific, foreign-seeming thing, a beast formed in the unbelievable pressures of a weird, hostile environment. Offices make vampire squids, simply a fact of nature. Then, and some of them phones. My name is Mike Rignetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND and me at Mike Rignetta. Keen-eared listeners may have noticed the Patreon mentioned at the top of this episode was not Reasonably Sounds. That Patreon has been purposefully deactivated in an attempt to uh, consolidate some of my digital footprint, you know, just doing some internet housekeeping. So if you want to support the show and all of the other things that I make, uh, music, live streams, the occasional YouTube video, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash micrognetta. 
And of course, thanks to all of my current patrons whose support helps pay for studio upkeep, hosting, and a very reasonable, I might say, amount of research that is priced very fairly. And if you are listening to this and wondering what is the future of Reasonably Sound, the answer is don't ruin the moment. Let's not jump into anything too quickly. It's not, you know, we don't have to make this a thing. I mean, why put a name on it? This was fun, wasn't it? Who knows where it'll go? Let's see. Let's just, let's follow our hearts. Reasonably Sound's theme and act break music are by Will Stratton. Its visual design is by Tita Tepp. This episode was researched, written, recorded, edited, sound designed, and scored by me, Mike Rugnetta. And here is the sound of a ping pong ball on a porcelain tile floor.